The Sacred Changemakers podcast is supported by Coaches Business School, helping the world's most caring coaches build a purpose-driven and profitable business that makes a meaningful impact in our world. Check out their unique frameworks and methods to help you transform and grow your business. Now is the time to build a bridge from what you want in life to include what the world needs. You can do well in business and do good, and together we can make a meaningful difference. Find out more at coachesbusinessschool.com. Hey there. You're listening to another episode of the Sacred Changemakers podcast. And in today's episode, I'm talking with Dr. Irina O'Brien, founder of the Neuroscience School and a passionate research scientist of the brain. She helps practitioners understand and apply insights from cutting edge neuroscience research. So if you're one of us that, you know, embrace a scientific mindset, and like most of us who work in change, you're, you're fascinated by neuroscience and what it can teach us about ourselves, particularly the data that can underpin some of the things that we do as coaches and consultants and change makers, you know, and how the brain kind of fits in with, with things like human potential and change so that we can, you know, not only get better for ourselves with our own relationships with our brain, but we can also get better for our clients and help them have an easier and more effective change process with a, a, a better ROI, then this is a conversation that you don't want to miss. Because Dr. O'Brien teaches coaches and other helping professionals how to achieve better results for their clients with neuroscience by really digging in and understanding the brain research. She loves seeing her students gain confidence in their ability to evaluate neuroscience findings and then use them successfully in their own practice. Her certificate program in neuroscience is certified by the International Coaching Federation for continuing coaching education credit. And Dr. O'Brien, she has studied neuroscience now for 25 years. She holds a PhD in neuroscience from the University du Quebec in Montreal, where she did brain imaging studies. And she completed a postdoctoral fellowship at the Center for Language, Mind and Brain at McGill University. So, If you're interested in just learning more about your gray matter, about neuroplasticity and its role in the change process, then Dr. O'Brien's going to bust some myths about the brain. She's going to help you understand what the latest research shows, along with a few simple and practical techniques that can really help us all to live our best lives. It's a fascinating conversation that I think you'll enjoy. So let me introduce you to Dr. Irina O'Brien. Hey, Irina, welcome to the Sacred Changemakers podcast. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing well, Jane, and it's great to be here. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to talking to you. Neuroscience, I think, is one of those areas that has really been up and coming and is something that I think, you know, a lot of change makers are thinking about from coaches to consultants. So I'm really excited to talk to you today about what you're really passionate about. But before we dive in, um, our listeners have just heard your professional bio, so they know something about you. But I'd love to hear, like in your own words, something about the real life human being behind the bio who is she oh my gosh (laughs) I really wasn't prepared for that (laughs) I wasn't prepared for that question um so I'm I'm a mother of of uh of three children three adult children now older adults now um and this isn't my first career I used to be a chartered accountant so that was my first career and it wasn't something I wasn't that's probably my bio it probably, I wasn't really passionate about it. And so after my third child was born, I went back to university and I did another undergraduate degree in, in psychology. And then um, during that first semester, I took my first course in neurobiology and thought, felt like my mind had been let out of a box. Wow. I was just blown away. And then I just went all the way to a PhD. So I'm a research, uh, I was a research psychologist. Uh, and, um, yeah, I was a research psychologist and, and, and I did do my research. Uh, I did brain imaging studies and, uh, electrophysiological studies while I was, uh, working on my PhD and my postdoc. So, yeah. and I've wow. had a love affair with the neuroscience since. 
Wow. And I love how you describe it as a love affair, because it's almost like, as you described it, then it's almost like the lights went on <laughs> inside. The lights did go on then. <laughs> and it's so different to accounting. So what is it about neuroscience and neurobiology, I think you said, that really captured you? I've. It's the fascination with the brain, and it's also... It's also, I love research. I love digging to find an answer. And the brain is so complex that you can just keep digging. I mean, and, and neuroscience has just scratched the surface of what's possible uh, and scratched the surface of, of our learnings about the brain because there are new techniques that are coming out all the time that give us that will allow us to even uh have better detail and uh and and learn more about the function of the brain mm. so yeah yeah so you said that you went through um you know you kind of dived in the lights went on you dived in and you went all the way through to phd so when you look yes. back on that early learning journey I mean, what kind of insights, what are the things that you remember about that? I mean, what was it that really pulled you into this, this research career and, and the neuroscience school that you now run? I think um, I'm an empiricist at heart. So I, I just like to, I'm, I'm like a detective, right? right. So I keep, and, and I like learning. And I mean, with the brain, it's never, it's never ending. And then also I'm someone who is really passionate about personal development. Um, that's because I, you know, I've suffered from anxiety uh, for all of my life, I guess you could say. And I have learned things through my readings and research in neuroscience that have helped me manage the anxiety. Mm -hmm. And I see that with my students now, too, is that how the learnings are practical, right? People think that neuroscience is so hard and, um, and, and they're never going to get their minds around it. And it's just not true. You know, with a little bit of help, you can get your mind around it. And there are practical uh, learnings from, uh, from the research. Mm -hmm. And you talked about something that anxiety that is absolutely, yeah. I mean, if we look at the data, it's absolutely rife right now in our culture and in our society. I just wondered, could you give us a sense of, you know, if there's anybody that's listening, that's also, you know, like, like you suffering from anxiety in some way, how can neuroscience can help? Well, one of the things that was, um, that really made a difference for me was when I learned about um, these two networks in the brain. Um, I mean, we have many networks because that because that's how the neurons are divided into networks. Um, and so two of the networks that are important here are the default mode network and the central executive network. And so, you know, they each have their own series of, of, uh, of structures. Um, and I always had trouble just getting going in the morning. You know, if you have anxiety, you have a lot of fears and there's a lot of things that are stopping you from moving forward. Uh, I would wake up in the morning with a sense of despair and just not want to work on anything. And then when I learned about these networks and the thing is with the default, you can't be in both networks at the same time. So the default mode network, uh, you're, you're in that network whenever you are in your own internal thoughts. Right. And the central executive network is the network where you get your work done. So something that's external to you, right, or, or external to your mind. So like writing, let's say, writing an article. So if you're sitting there thinking and trying to get yourself motivated to start or to find the motivation to start working, you're keeping yourself in the default mode network. Wow. And you can't get the work done. And it's, it's simple to get out of the default mode network and into the central executive network. And uh, there, there are two easy ways to do that. And one of them is to take your uh, mind uh, or your thoughts out of your mind and out into the room and, and look around at the items in, in the room uh, without judgment or look out the window or anything that will bring your mind into the present moment and out of your own thoughts. And the other way, and which is a really great way, which is what I do, is just start working on something that's still important, but that's small and that you can succeed at. So the key is that you have to have success on that task. 
that you choose in the morning. And that's been a game changer. So I don't, I don't have that despair anymore. And on days when I really don't feel, and we all have those days, I'm sure you have those yeah, too, that yeah. we just don't feel like working. I think, well, I've got to get something done. So I'll choose something. Uh, and it has to be important. It has to be something that moves you forward in your, uh, in your work. So let's say um, that I'm writing, I want to write an article. And I'll start with uh, a section like describing the method that they used in the research study, because I can kind of cut and paste that and edit it a little bit. So it's an important task. It's easy. And I can succeed at that. Mm-hmm. And then that gives you a dopamine. Uh, uh, it, it gives you a rise in dopamine. And then the dopamine lasts for a while until the next, until the next task. Um, and it predicts success on the next task. So in effect, you could set up your day as a series of small tasks that you can succeed at. So that's really the key is to have success on those tasks. And that can set you up for a really great day. Yeah. A a productive day. A productive day. Yeah. I love how simple (laughs) what you're talking about is. It's simple, isn't it? Yeah. It's real. Well, it's like all the most powerful and profound things. They are usually incredibly simple and replicable. And that's how we can use them because they are so simple. But I I love that idea of just starting somewhere very easy. And then, like you say, that you start to feel good about what you've done the dopamine kicks in and that's enough then to carry you into the more challenging aspects of your article writing so that is fabulous that is really great so of course right this is the sacred change makers conversation and podcast and one of the things we talk about a lot um, because we have a lot of coaches and consultants and business leaders in our audience is is we talk about human change and and we talk about how we can inspire change that's sustainable, how we can, you know, kind of shape a better future for us all and do that from the individual to the collective. So one of the things that I was excited to talk to you about, Irina, is this idea of like neuroscience and human change. I mean, what can we learn from neuroscience? What can it teach us about human change? That if we're here as change makers helping to inspire change, that we would really benefit from knowing. Oh, wow. (laughs) How long have we got? (laughs) That that is is such a big big question. Well, for one thing, the brain does not like uncertainty. So the brain Mm. likes certainty. And so that's why for many people, change, change can be hard. Mm. Right? And so you have to help people create change in ways that, um, I was going to say small changes, right? But, I mean, and, and people have, have different tolerance for change, right? But if someone doesn't have that much tolerance for change, so, so you have to make it small enough that, that they're able to do it. Um, and then... So there are ways also of working, the brain works in certain ways. And so you need to work with the way that the brain works. So let's say, for example, uh, one common thing that coaches often uh, ask their clients is to visualize having succeeded on on a task or succeeded uh, in a goal. Well, if all they do is see themselves standing on the podium of success, that can actually um, that can actually uh, be detrimental to to reaching a goal. That's what the research shows. Oh, and the reason for that is is because there is there's a drop in energy. Like like uh, once you see, hear, and feel having succeeded, your brain feels your brain thinks that you've already done it, and so there's a drop in energy. And so with this particular research study, they measured the drop in energy using systolic blood pressure. And that's what they found, that after someone visualized seeing, hearing, and feeling that they had already succeeded, uh, there was a drop in it in that systolic blood pressure. And so the way to do it is to, if you're going to visualize, is to visualize um, the steps that you need to take to get to your goal. So right. you visualize the process, right? And so at, people say, well, athletes visualize all the time. 
they do, but they don't, um, they don't see themselves just standing on the podium with a medal around their necks, right? right. They see themselves running the race. Yes. Or yes. hitting the stroke. Yes. Right? And so that's what we have to do too, if we're going to visualize. Right. Right. And that makes a lot of sense because I learned that in my NLP master practitioner, I don't know how many decades ago, uh, probably before neuroscience was a was was as popular as it is today. But that that's great nuance there in, in the actual process of helping people visual because I thought like because also I have a daughter who's an ultra runner. So I do a lot of coaching with her on. But like yeah. you say, we're we're in, she's envisioning the race she's envisioning when she gets like a block and she thinks she can't go any further because her legs are because she runs 150 200 miles at a time that oh, kind of stuff wow. right so yeah. it's like she has to she has to go through the pain barrier and she also has to know what is like good pain and what is not what needs pain that needs attention kind of thing so so there's a lot of mindset work in the ultra marathon running but I hadn't made the distinction from the just like seeing her. And I do get her to go to see the process of the race, but also then running through the completion, because that's always the big thing with ultramarathon running is the goal is always to complete, really. <laughs> um, not so much about times, more about completion. And so getting her to do that. But I hadn't realized that you know just that end piece wouldn't work on its own and as coaches with my clients of course we hear a lot about neuroplasticity right which I do yeah. want to talk to you about yes and these small incremental changes but one of the things that I've kind of shifted in maybe the past I don't know five or six years with my clients is this idea of practice <laughs> and I, I and it's kind of come from my readings around neuroscience but it's this idea that if we want to do a like a big change like we've known about the small incremental changes for a while but this idea that you can't just leap like and and get there it's like let's get let's get the touch points the milestones the practices the habits if you like I know that's another way of thinking about it that and and I think of it in beliefs, behaviors, and structures, because I'm also a therapist, a body, a shiatsu practitioner, therapist, which means I learned that with healing, right? This beliefs, behaviors, and structures. And so this idea of practice, I believe, is is important. Does the neuroscience like back that up or like is there something else uh, that I'm missing? <laughs> no, absolutely. Absolutely. To create a new habit, it's all about practice. Right. And, and, and about making the change small enough, right? Right. Because, yeah, because it, uh, we just can't do big leaps all at once, right? We can do successive, right? Successive approximations to that big leap. Mm. Um, and then also to neuroplasticity. So, so, you know, the brain changes with experience. So that is what neuroplasticity is. And so in order to create these brain changes that you desire, uh, you have to work toward a goal um there has to be it has to be deliberate so you have to be making changes toward that goal and then you have to practice mm -hmm. right and how and how long it takes it depends on the the complexity and the difficulty of the goal right, right. if you're learning to juggle for example um they can see uh, brain imaging changes in as little as three weeks oh wow yeah, for learning how to juggle. So, you know, most of what you want to do is more difficult than that, right? Or, mm -hmm. or most of what you want to help clients with is more difficult than that. But, yeah. So it could take a while, but you will get there with practice and, and then there will be brain changes Yeah, that are associated with that. And so going on from that too is, do you mind if I just add? No, please add do. Please so that neuroplasticity. <clears throat> so... Uh, what was it bilingualism learning in that second language and learning to play a musical instrument are incredibly beneficial for the brain and for um uh and for uh preventing i wouldn't call it, preventing is not the right word because we're not going to prevent but protecting us from cognitive decline as we age mm -hmm. because 
these these skill uh, because learning a new language, learning to play an instrument trains a lot of skills at the same time. So in these complex tasks, so it 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 uh, trains the brain in many different ways, which are beneficial. And in fact, bilinguals see uh, or or uh, dementia in bilinguals is seen about four years later than in monolinguals. So there oh, is wow. protection. Yeah. Wow. Which you said something there like brain training and I straight away went to, oh my gosh, like if I look on, if I look on the Apple game store, there's so many like brain training things. And I don't know, are they like, are they in, are they embedded in real science or is this just like, you know, like them jumping on the bandwagon of, of whatever. Um, and so it makes me kind of think about the myths that we have about the brain that aren't yeah. true and I just wondered if you could highlight a few of those for us um well there is a myth that we only use 10 percent of our brain right okay. <laughs> but that's absolutely not true we use all of our brain all of the time we oh, just wow. use it in different people just use it in different ways right because the brain has been built over our lifetime through past experience like through environmental yeah through our environment so each one of our brains is in a is in a way different, even though even though we're very much alike, we're still very different uh, mm. from each other. So each brain is unique. Right. So I mean you taught there about like two things that I believe I'm not good at. One is being bilingual, um, because I've kind of got schoolgirl French and schoolgirl German from growing up in England. Um, but I wouldn't say I can converse very well in either of them. I also did Latin, which was very difficult. And then you said playing a musical instrument. I used to play the oboe, but kind of dropped it as quickly as I could because I wasn't very good at it. So here's my question, right? Is it possible? Given that we know what we know about neuroplasticity today, does it mean that we can all do anything we want if we put enough time and effort in to change our brains? Or is it still that there are people who have a natural inclination for, I don't know, being bilingual or playing musical instruments, and they'll always be way better than me? <laughs> um, so... It, it isn't true that we can, that all of us can do absolutely everything that we want. There are constraints, right? right? Some of them might be genetic constraints. We might, we right. might not have the genes. We might not have the personality. We might not have the intellectual capacity, right. but within that, right? The brain is plastic and it's plastic into old age. So you can always, you can always keep training your brain. Um, and so it's just within within those constraints. And as far as um, interestingly, as far as uh, bilingualism uh, goes, my my dissertation was on second language learning when I did my PhD, actually. And um, so it was on working memory or a specific portion of working memory called phonological memory. And, and it's just hearing sounds. It's the ability to hear sounds and repeat those sounds that you heard. And people who were better at that, like. So you only have to remember it for two, for one or two seconds, and then and then repeat it. So people who are better at doing that progress faster in learning a second language. Well, some people are just not able to do that, and and it has nothing to do with intelligence. And so one of the stories that uh, that I came across when I was doing my research was of a a PhD in biomedical physics. So a, a highly educated man, obviously. And he couldn't remember a phone number long enough to write it down. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, he could not do that. Okay, mm -hmm. that makes me feel better. So, yeah. <laughs> but I don't, I know I don't have a strong auditory sense in that way. I'm way more visual. Like, uh, and so I know, like, if I'm listening to podcasts or audios or something like that, and I know I've really enjoyed the podcast, one of the things I do is I, I get the transcript because otherwise I, I just know I can't retain. I just know I enjoyed it. I, I can't always remember what the highlights were, though. But if I get a transcript and then I can highlight, I remember, like, most of it. So it's I think it's just like you say, knowing what works for you and and what doesn't 
But so there's another thing now bubbling up to the surface for me, which is <laughs> is all around change. And, you know, when I, I look back on my career, I've, I've been in the change industry now for uh, over three decades, which is a long time. <laughs> and I know I've seen some of the fads of different things come and go. And I remember when I first started out in the in the early 90s, that there was this this big movement, particularly in the UK, of um like, you know, find your weaknesses and then, you know, work on those and bring them up to a level, right? And then as we moved into, I don't know, the 2000s, and I think it was Darren Hardy that brought in, no, somebody brought in Strengths Finder, and then it was like, forget your weaknesses, now let's work on your strengths. Like when we're working with clients and indeed for ourselves, is there a balance between the strengths and weaknesses or is it that we should ignore one and go to the other? Should we be just working on strengths and ignoring our weaknesses? What does the neuroscience tell us about this kind of space? Um, I mean, the, the, the brain is plastic. So in theory, right, uh, subject to these constraints and um, we should be able to, um, we should be able to train ourselves to do anything within these constraints. But in reality, you know, sometimes, so, so this is not a, a neuroscience answer, but just focusing on our weaknesses. So no, so sorry, what I really want to say really is that everybody has their genius. Everybody has something that they really shine at, right? And so to develop that, right, rather than, so you can become really good at whatever it is that you love and that you shine at doing. And if you just focus on the weaknesses, you just might be, be mediocre mm -hmm. for the rest of your life. And so it doesn't mean that you shouldn't, but I don't, I think we've had too much focus on, um, on improving our weaknesses. And I think that there is a balance between the two, right? Really focus on your strengths and then develop those weaknesses that you need to uh, to make yourself, uh, to bring out your genius. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes perfect sense to me, it does. And because it's fascinating to me when I look at how change itself and the process of change has kind of changed over the different decades. And, and now neuroscience is something that, you know, many, many of us are really interested in because it's got a strong scientific kind of, like you say, it's got a research background that can underpin, you know, some of the things that we do. So what, you know, for people like coaches and consultants, one of the, the messages that I often talk about is how we don't just learn things, but we need to embody our knowledge. Because I, I meet a lot of people that have been on a lot of courses and done a lot of stuff, but yet they're not living into that knowledge. And what I mean by that is, for me, I think that it's the action. It's not just what do I know passively, and I've just learned something. I don't know that we actually know anything viscerally until we move into action around it, which is this idea of practice that we talked about earlier. Yeah. And I I just wonder, like in terms of the, the neuroscience itself, particularly as we get older, like what do we need to be aware of in terms of how we change? Because from a psychological perspective, I know, you know, the theories of people like Jung and Piaget and, and Freud have talked about that, you know, as we get past midlife, we start to either contract or getting, uh, you know, we continue to expand and we get attracted to opposite behaviors and opposite things than we've spent most of our life doing, or we just get into the more certainty in the comfort zone and kind of contract down and then we're right and everybody else is wrong. So <laughs> that's what some of those <laughs> psychological uh, things say. Yeah. But what does the neuroscience tell us that we need to be aware of as we kind of move through through life? Are there different stages of the brain? through life in that way? I I haven't seen anything um, that says that there are different stages. There might be, but I just, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not aware of them. But one of, I think the most important thing that we have to remember is that we are a mind-body system. Mm. We're not just the mind or 
well, well, we're not. Yeah, we're a mind-body system. And in fact, the purpose of the brain is to ensure that we grow, survive, and reproduce. Mm. So in effect, the brain is in service of the body. Mm. And so you can't differentiate between a healthy body and a healthy mind. They are one and the same thing. And so that's why it's important to make sure that you eat well, that you exercise, and that you get enough sleep. Those are the most basic things and the most important things we can do to, for a healthy, uh, a healthy mind or a healthy mm-hmm. brain. And you just said two words there interchangeably that I sometimes think of as quite different, which is brain and mind. So in your world, how do the, are they interchangeable? Do they mean the same thing or do they mean different? Well, the, the mind is a product <laughs> of the brain. <laughs> okay. So I, I wouldn't I wouldn't dwell on that, you know, too much. Um, yes, I think many people use it interchangeably. Okay. So um, let, um, yeah, let's just say that they're that we're I'm using it as synonyms, right? So okay. the mind is a product of the brain. Okay. You sound so certain when you say that. You really do, which is interesting to me because I'm not sure that I fully agree. But anyway, because <laughs> uh, I'm kind of when I say that I'm I'm looking into things like consciousness and the brain and consciousness and mind and what is mind and, yeah. and where does that fit? And, and you know, there's been some study that the mind is also in the gut and in different places. It's not just in the brain. But I just I just wondered. So let me clarify yeah, do. Yeah, please do. Yes, please no, do. So, so, so you, you are right. And especially when we talk about consciousness, right? We need, we need the brain and the body right. because so when, when I was in, uh, in grad school, there was one course that, um, that we did, uh, that was just super fascinating. We talked about the brain a lot. And, uh, on, uh, on one of the questions that we discussed was if you just put the brain, took the brain and put it in, to a bowl all by itself would it still be conscious and no the brain would not be conscious because the brain wouldn't have any incoming stimuli Mm -hmm. and it wouldn't have any outgoings either it wouldn't be able to influence any outgoing so it would just sit there and eventually it would probably it it would just shrivel and die because there'd be no in nothing Mm -hmm. coming in and nothing going out so yes for consciousness we need both the mind and the body the brain and the body Mm. absolutely and so that's why you have to keep your body healthy also because if you're feeding your body junk then you're feeding your brain junk yeah yeah and what's what's fascinating to me about this this idea of like neuroscience itself is of course it's it's situated in in many ways in in the physical reality in the yeah. the fact that we can we can touch and we can see we can do brain imaging we can actually then interpret the results but we've got real hard life data that we can actually you know tangibly see whereas yeah. when we talk about the mind to me and consciousness it feels like almost almost an invisible kind of thing it's intangible it and therefore there's an awful lot of different perspectives and worldviews that come into what what is the mind what is consciousness and what's it got to do with anything (laughs) and I I know there's a number of researchers that have been trying to situate the consciousness (laughs) somewhere in scientific physical reality and have really struggled to do that in any way shape or form but I just wondered what's your sense of when you when you think of neuroscience do you see it as a purely physical tangible science or are there like I mean Einstein used to talk about you know spook what did he say spooky spooky something at a distance I can't remember spooky atoms at a distance or something uh which was what he kind of said to all the things that I guess back then were the beginning of quantum that we didn't really understand but is now beginning to emerge into the world what's your view of neuroscience in that way I mean are there elements that, because you said at the beginning, there's so much complexity to this, we just keep evolving and learning. You know, is it possible that there's elements of the brain that, you know, can't be seen and, and can't be kind of quantified in the way that the scientific mindset would like to? Well, 
Um, I mean, of course, because we don't know. We're, I mean, brain science is just in its infancy mm-hmm. now, right. right? Since brain imaging started, and it wasn't that long ago. It was in the early 90s that brain imaging started. Um, so, um, yeah, ex- except that, except that if you look at the, the purpose of the brain is to ensure that we grow, survive, and reproduce. So it's all about biology. We don't we don't think or do or emote except as it benefits our survival. Mm-hmm. And so it's really an interesting way and I love that way of looking of looking at the brain. Right? And so we think that we have and and even our higher level thoughts are in service of our biology. Right? Um because yeah, or, or is in service of our biology. Yeah. So how would I explain that further? <laughs> I'm trying to think here <laughs> how how I would explain that um, that in a better way. Um, so if if you're alive today, right? And so if you're alive today with all uh, with all these ruminating thoughts and all this anxiety and you know all, all of these foibles that people have, um, and I mean clearly anxiety is not it is not a pleasant thing to have, right? But right. if I'm alive today, then my brain thinks that, oh, my brain has kept me alive, so whatever it's been doing is right. Mm-hmm. So that's what I mean by the brain is in service of our biology and that right. everything we think and do is in service of that biology. Does that mean it is the best way? No, it doesn't mean that. It means that it's kept you alive for this long, so the brain thinks it's doing something right. And if you want to change that, uh, you, the way you think, then that's going to then then that's going to require some effort. And because the brain is built on experience, you so every time you make these changes, you are you are changing the experience of the brain, right? Mm-hmm. So then the brain has new data, right? Does that make sense to you? It does. And this, this, so there's yeah. something bubbling now, which is like a, a, a small insight in a way. Like as I'm listening to you talking, Irina, I'm getting the sense that if if the brain is this, you know, really into this neuroplasticity, it almost sounds like, and this is what I want to ask you, it sounds like it's always changing. It must always be changing because the environment around me, what I'm doing or not doing, well, I can't not do really, everything's doing. And so even the decisions I make to not do something is still a decision to do something else. And so does that mean that it's constantly in this place of flux? It's constantly shifting and changing. And is that what makes it alive? I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not sure how you're using the term alive in the no, literal sense or no, no, but it is constantly changing. And so that's why we have to be careful what we feed it. Mm, yeah. Right? So we have to, we have to be careful of the kind of people that we associate with. Are, are, yeah. are they helping us? I mean, not, not directly, but are they, are, are, are they helping us feed our brain with good thoughts or not? Right. You know, or with or or with detrimental thoughts. So we have to be careful of what we feed our brain. And something's coming up for me about I'm going to use the word alignment because I can't really think of another word that fits as well. But it's almost like when I think about myself in my own life and I I have a sense of what makes my life good or meaningful or worthwhile. I also have a sense of like who I want to become in the future, kind of almost like the path ahead that that feels like where where I want to go, where I feel called to or whatever. And, and, and you could say my purpose. And so when I think about what you've just said, it's almost like are the environments that I'm putting myself in, are the experiences that I'm creating for myself, that I'm inviting into my world, are those things in alignment? with with my own autonomy my own sovereignty or are they kind of off track and going to take me in a different direction is it really as literal as that i'm not sure what you mean by your question Mm, so what i mean is can i can i co-create my reality can i shape my brain in in conscious and intentional ways by getting really 
kind of aware of what I'm feeding it through experience, through through the things that I do or don't do, through the actions I take, through the people I associate with, through the studies I do, the books I read, all these elements. Because if it's constantly changing and I'm not aware, I could be just like throwing spaghetti at my brain. Like it's like throwing spaghetti at the wall and hoping that I'm going in the right direction. Whereas I could just be bombarding it with as many things that are not useful as like, I th- if I think of social media, I like we can get trapped in an algorithm on social media and I can sometimes be on there for like, I don't know, half an hour has gone by and I only meant to be on there for like three minutes. <laughs> and yeah. that's where I think we've got a lot of influences in our modern world that it's like lots of things waving at us, telling us to come this way that is part of a system that somebody else wants a different outcome for us than we want for ourselves. That's kind of where I'm going with this. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. So we can be either reactive, right, to our environment, or we can be deliberate about it. Mm. And so reactive is when you hear that ping, right, that a message has come through or or, or that you have uh, you have a like on Facebook. I'm, I'm, I, I don't use Facebook very much, so I'm not, and, and I have everything <laughs> turned off, so I don't get any notices on Facebook, but I think people do get notices. Um, and then they, and, and, and then I think Facebook even, even sends you messages if you haven't been on there for yeah. a while. So yeah. those are all reactive, right? right? And so, but you can also be deliberate and you can choose. Whether, right. whether you do want to go there or not, um, whether, and, and, and so having, like for me, I don't have uh, text message notifications uh, turned on. I always have my phone on silent um, anyway. Um, yeah, and, and I don't have email notifications either coming in because every time a notification comes in and disrupts you from your work, it takes, it takes a long time to get to get your thoughts back into your work. And yeah, and a long time. I mean, it could take you 10, 15 minutes to get back into your work after you've been distracted. Mm-hmm. So you can be intentional and deliberate right. about where you place your attention. Yeah. yeah. And that feeds into something. And, and, and not all the time, right? You're, you're, you're not going to succeed 100% of the time because right. we're only human. And in fact, most of our life is unconscious. Right. Most most of the things that we do, we're not really that conscious of. Yeah. And that's kind of where I was going with this kind of next yeah. area, which is around like uh, raising awareness. Because one of the things I notice in, in your story is that, you know, there came a point where you became viscerally aware of your brain and built, I, you know, I could almost say a different relationship with it, whereas previous, there probably wasn't one. If I think about me, like I don't know that I have really a relationship with my brain and my neuroscience in the same way you do, because you're passionate about it. So this idea of like raising awareness to, you know, how we function so that we can optimize like our, our behaviors and our lives and what we do so that we can live that best life that we're talking about and and one of the things that comes up for me when I think about both myself and my clients is is the interaction between like the brain and things like mood because I um, I can see in my clients that emotions can often derail them can get in the way of what their intentional what their intentions are it can it can keep them stuck it, you know it can really mess with them in a way so is there anything that you can share that can help people manage you know those negative emotions those things that keep us stuck <laughs> and small first first of all to say there's it, there's a difference between mood and emotion okay great right? yeah mood, what's that yeah. mood is just kind of like a general feeling that you have for the day right. of the day and mood is there and so in psychology we call it affect and so mm-hmm. it's there all the time, even at night. And so it, it's simple, like, oh, I'm just feeling blah today, you know, and, and without any really specific reason, right? right. And some right. days you're feeling really up and upbeat, but not for any, not because anything specific happened. You're just feeling that way. And so that is, uh, that is mood. And mood is simply the sum of 
what uh, what I call, or, or from Lisa Feldman Barrett, what we call the body budget. And the body budget really is your energy level. And so it's made up of diet, exercise, and sleep. So how, uh, how well did you eat? How have you been exercising? How well did you sleep? Um, and then also the, and, and, and anything else that can, um, like pleasant experiences, right, that, that can increase your energy, unpleasant experiences decrease your energy. So you have to look at it at that as your energy level, mm-hmm. and that affects your mood. And emotion is a more emotion is in response to a specific thing, right? It's something that um, that happened, and mood can be there for a long time. Emotion is really is transient. I oh, mean, okay, you know, it's kind of it is is like true motion yeah, is transient. Okay. So, so for example, people will often use like the the, the big word now is anxiety. It used to be stress, right? Mm-hmm. People use, overuse the word stress, and so now they define everything as anxiety. Um, I know my anxiety is not like just the, the anxiety that people are using today because I've had it for a long time from uh, due to a childhood trauma. So, um, yeah. So, so, so you have to be careful about using these mm-hmm. all-encompassing words like stress, right? Because these words... What are the three P's? Permanent, pervasive, and there's another P. Permanent, pervasive, and personal, mm-hmm. right? And so words like stress and anxiety sound permanent, like they're there for a long time. Whereas if you were to use words like frustrated, right? That's temporary, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, no, I unhappy. can feel that. Yeah, I can feel yeah, that. Yeah, unhappy, disappointed, annoyed. What about things like fear? Because I notice fear being very pervasive at the moment, much more so than it has been at other parts of my career um, for my clients. I, I feel there's a lot of fear in the culture now. Is that a mood or an emotion? Because I'm still trying to work out. Because to me, fear feels chronic right now. It doesn't feel like it comes and goes. Yeah, we have to be careful with these chronic, uh, with yeah. these chronic word, words. We had, so... Our words define our reality. Mm. And so to the extent that we can use more specific words and fear, fear is a, fear is a hard one. I don't really know what, I'm not sure what to say about fear. Um, you know, a couple of the classic ways to, um, to deal with uh, negative emotions is to name them. Yeah. Right. Is to name them. Or to um, what's the other one? Uh, or yes, to label them, or to uh, what's that thing called where you add give it give it another meaning? Um, that just slips my mind. <laughs> like what else could it mean, right? But, so this combination right. of, of physical of sensations that you're feeling. What else can you be reframing? That's what oh I'm reframing, for, yeah. right? Right, reframing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So labeling or reframing. And I mean, all, most coaches know that, right? About yeah. labeling and reframing. But the thing is that the research shows that uh, if we label or reframe an emotion, it not only reduces the immediate emotional charge, it reduces the amygdala activation. Oh. Mm-hmm. So um, those are two simple techniques. And then, and then, and then, absolutely, be careful about about. Uh, giving a name to whatever you're feeling and try and make it as specific as possible and not just use big words like uh, overarching words such as stress or uh, or anxiety mm. yeah it's it's hard I think I think you know one of the things about language because I completely agree with you I think in Mm -hmm. some ways, language confines our experience and having worked cross-culturally as a coach, I also notice how language defines our worldview. Because like like when I've when I've worked in Finland, you know, they have like 26 different names for snow, whereas we just have like snow. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And it's it's fascinating when you get into that nuance that you're talking about there. I think sometimes we don't always have the language for what we now know and where we're headed in a way. And uh, I totally agree with you, I think. 
you know, if we can get more mindful about the energy beneath the words that we're saying and our intentions, which, you know, all comes back to awareness, which is what we were talking about before, which is which is really important, I think, for all of us. So, Irina, yes. I'm noticing the time and I, I just want to ask you, you know, if there's something that you wanted to talk about today in our interview, something that maybe we haven't got to, or maybe it's just some words of wisdom for our audience about how neuroscience can help them to live their best life. I mean, what might it be? For me, I'm really passionate about that we're a mind-body system. And you really have to take care of your physical body. So diet, mm -hmm. exercise, and sleep. Because if you don't have those, no matter what else you do, you aren't going to have your best brain. Right. It's just not possible. Right. And it's fascinating when you say that, because again, it's so simple. It's something we all know, but we don't do it all the time, do we? Maybe I'm projecting here, but... <laughs> I think that's very I true. I teach my students about that. My students yeah. get it because yeah, yeah. I stress it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really important. Thank you so much for our conversation today. Um, you know, you've kind of ignited a passion in me for neuroscience again. So um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to diving back in. And thank you, because I know our audience will have learned so much from you today. So thank you, Arena. Oh, thank you, Jane, for this opportunity to let me speak about what I love. <laughs> You're so welcome, my friend. Okay, everyone, that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much for listening in. Now, before we go, I want to remind you that all the resources and links for our guests are in the show notes at sacredchangemakers.com. A big thank you to members of Coaches Business School who are our podcast sponsors and our extended community who are helping us make a global impact aligned with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, all visible on our website. And if you're looking for more soul in your life and business, if you have a sense that you have a calling, maybe you're here to make a bigger impact or simply connect with others on your change-making journey. If our episode resonated with you today, I hope you'll consider joining us. Again, you can find out more at sacredchangemakers.com. So for now, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your intention and efforts to make our world a better place. Until next time, lots of love.